Hello, creeps. I'll be your ghost. I mean host. As we delve the crypts of spooky movies and even spookier theory. Welcome to Horror Vanguard. I was just saying, I feel like if this, I feel like this week you must have kind of, you've had a kind of intensive British cultural education because we're dealing with a text which is like painfully British in like, in its cultural references and its sense of humor. Yeah, it's, it's been, it's been an interesting uh, study. Um, I think this was, this was definitely a better introduction like this is if if you want to have a crash course in in british culture and you want to do that by way of children's literature that features schools for wizards um i would go terry pratchett and worst witch over harry potter uh yeah uh broke harry potter blairite neoliberalism rampant transphobia uh bespoke terry pratchett comedic humanism <laughs> univer- u- universalism beloved by lgbt readers yeah i was i was this this is like it was really refreshing it was refreshing to watch uh hogfather um we so you we, we were trying to figure out what episode we wanted to do and you texted me how about hogfather and i read the title and my first reaction was like what the fuck is that <laughs> <laughs> And I like I, I googled it and like I was like it's like a book, <laughs> but no, it's a three-hour, three-part miniseries. Uh, yes, it is. It is a uh, a TV adaptation of Terry Pratchett's Discworld novel Hogfather that was broadcast on Sky, I think, back in two thousand and six. Um, and that's what we're talking about. So, so hello, everybody. Uh, however, you celebrate a very, a very merry Hogswatch to you all. I'm John, <laughs> joined as always by Ash. How are you doing? Um, I'm I'm Hogtastic. Uh, I'm ready for is- Hogsmiths. I got I've got my uh, traditional Hogsmith decorations hung up. I'm good to go. Yep, uh, I am expecting the magical sleigh pulled by a team of giant wild boar to be landing on the roof uh, any any day now. Yeah, I just, I can't I can't wait to hear the the, the snorting of a half man half boar as he as he comes to bring me treats. Um, I I'm I'm, <laughs> I'm always excited. I'm always excited when I ask you this uh, at the beginning of every episode. But I have to admit there is a bit of trepidation within me. Um, could you? I don't know. Could you explain? If for people, I'm sure there are lots of people like you who have never heard of this before. But can you explain? Hogfather by Terry Pratchett, uh, the TV movie adaptation. What is it about? Somehow this wound up being the second movie this December that featured a skeleton pretending to be Santa Claus. This, of course, got me thinking about what links the embodiment of death with the embodiment of Yuletide cheer. And both of them represent a certain cosmic fairness. A level playing field that sees death as the great equalizer, and Saint Nick as this pure distillation of judgment without bias. All of us come before death in time. All of us are judged by the manifest content of our deeds. Yet we live in a society determined to undermine any sense of fairness. This is often disguised as a scientific truth. 
Of course life isn't fair, they say. Bad things happen to good people all the time. But as death suggests, as practice, you have to start out learning to believe the little lies. That positivism disguises an ideological goal. Not to illustrate a fundamental unfairness, but to sneak poison into our eggnog. That the status quo, such that it is, is that cosmic fairness played out. Terry Pratchett's death illuminates the nature of this fairness. It is a fairness that is fairy tale, a shared narrative that shapes the world we see. Things could never be more fair than they are now, but they could be more just. The material rules of fairness are negotiable, and so is the mythology we create around it. Death has rules. The Hogfather has rules. Humans have only to tell their stories and shape the world around them. The sun, after all, is an emissary of the divine that perpetually runs the risk of becoming nothing more than a ball of flaming gas. Gather round as we tell a story of Terry Pratchett's Hogwatch. Indeed, yes. <laughs> Join us before, before uh, as we try and keep the sun in the sky uh, rather than simply a flaming ball of gas. Um, and and listeners, do you want to know how you can help us keep the sun in the sky by supporting us on our Patreon? <laughs> oh, oh, so that, seamless, seamless, seamless. <laughs> so this was this was my first uh, Terry Pratchett anything. I, I had never read any Pratchett or or viewed any Pratchett adaptations prior to this. Yep. Uh, and so, well, okay. Well, well, what were your thoughts? What was your what was your kind of first impression? Um, so at first, like, uh, a little worried, like there, there, there was a little like, like maybe worried isn't the right word because you suggested this and I have a very high esteem of, of recommendations that you give, you know, you're batting a thousand for suggestions so for things I should read or watch so far. And, and this is par for the course, but there was a bit of me that's like, okay, like I'm familiar with a lot of like literature in this vein from my own childhood and like the tim curry worst witch movie is is a sleeper hit more people need to get on that thing um it, it, but but it does exist in dialogue with uh the great demon of children's literature the harry potter franchise um and so i was like okay how much of this is going to have to be necessarily read in context with that how does contemporary British politics overlay onto a text that predates it, but is there at the foundation of these moments? So those things were playing in the back of my mind. Um, and the other big trepidation that I had was like, there's a million of these Discworld books. Um, and I like, I've never read any of this. So I, I didn't know how much Discworld you need to know before going into this. And I did, I did watch a couple of YouTube videos that were like the lore of Discworld Discworld 101 stuff like that and it helped it definitely helped get an understanding of like what makes sense in the Discworld universe um but this does function as a standalone movie which is good uh, yeah yeah absolutely and i totally i totally understand i totally understand why uh you know given given that british fantasy especially british fantasy in the states is determined by three things, right? It's determined by Tolkien's Lord of the Rings. Um, oh, yeah. C.S. Lewis and Harry Hell Potter. Yeah. Uh, and there is not, there is not like, 
necessarily a, 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 a kind of a widespread awareness of like people like uh, Michael Moorcock, who's been writing some of the best kind of anarchist and leftist science fiction and fantasy and British writing ever. Uh, so, so, so I'm not, I'm not surprised that you were, a, you were, you were maybe like a little bit, a little bit wary of it. Um, but I mean, like I'm a, I'm a huge C.S. Lewis fiction fan. Uh, not so much of a fan of the rest of the stuff that C.S. Lewis has done. Um, and like, so, you know, same with Tolkien, Lord of the Rings, great stuff. Uh, shout out to the Tolkien estate for blocking the J.R.R. Tolkien that someone tried to, to found. Okay. Yep. Uh, <laughs> That rips, so that's good. Less Bitcoin, uh, anti-Bitcoin action as part of the show today. Yep. Um, but I, I, yeah, I really, I really liked this, and it does. There's, there's like a constellation starting to form in my understanding of the interaction between the like cultural production and political materiality of of the Queen's Isle of Whimsy. And, and Terry Pratchett now slots in nicely. It's becoming a more complete image, and it's an image painted exclusively with children who go to wizard school. Uh, yes, yeah. Uh, there's the, there is nothing there is nothing all that unique or groundbreaking about a a school, or in this case, a university for wizards. Well, there's the what is it? The unseen school for wizard arts. Uh, the unseen university. Yeah. Okay, and and um, so at the Unseen University, they've got like a team of Dumbledores that are in charge. Yep, yeah, yep. <laughs> and and there is there is a runt with a bowl haircut who's kind of a dunce, and and his 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 name is a very he's got a very what was his name? It was name was like Ponder Stubbins. Was was yeah. that that character? Uh, yes, his name is Ponder. Okay, and and he he is one hundred percent Harry Potter. Like, like not, not <laughs> skipping a beat. That was Harry Potter. And I'm just like, wow, like Rowling literally just, just looted everything around her. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. The, the, uh, the claims of Harry Potter's originality when it was first published have been somewhat exaggerated, shall we say? Um, but maybe for people who are not familiar, uh, it might be worth kind of just talking a little bit about Pratchett. And Discworld, I, I I will put my cards on the table straight off the bat, which is, uh, like I I I read a lot of these, and I read them a lot when uh when I was a kid, when I was growing up, uh, there is um so Josh Kirby who has a very kind of famous illustration style did the majority of the jackets, uh for Tol- uh, for Pratchett's paperbacks. Uh, mm-hmm. And like anyone who's a Discworld fan will have like a collection of these paperbacks which are like falling apart. So I collected them when I was a kid, and I I still have the collection somewhere in my house. Um, so I am I am deeply uh, kind of fond and and formed in some ways by reading Terry Pratchett. Um, and I'm pretty sure there's lots of people listening who are in the same boat. Uh, but for people who don't know, um, so the Discworld novels started being published in 1983. Um, the final one came out in 2015, just before uh, Pratchett passed away of Alzheimer's. Um, they're very, very funny. They get a lot more serious as they go on. There, there is there are flashes of some very serious ideas in Hogfather, which is the 20th novel. 
Um, they can be read by themselves, but they happen in broadly chronological order. Um, and one of the one of the one of the kind of recurring characters in the Discworld uh, stories is Death, who we will get onto in due course. Um, but I guess I guess maybe a question to ask is like we talk about the politics of horror quite a lot. Um, but what what are you, what are your thoughts about the politics of fantasy? Ooh, this is this is really interesting. I I, I think like this is an interesting distinction to carve too, because uh, there's a lot of like when when I think of the politics of fantasy, um, I, ironically enough, I often think of Tolkien and Lewis, because uh, because they were two fantasy authors working in a in a in a very that kind of high fantasy milieu who had uh deeply held and and flatly stated political aims that they built into their fictions and into their works and when i think of the connective sinews that i often see horror more of as this kind of involuntary thing you know like we we we're not often in control of what we're afraid of you know, fear, fear almost lives outside of us and, and, and makes its presence known. And it's shaped by engagement with politics, but it's like this er thing. Uh, fantasy more broadly tends, tends to have a bit more utility. What, what, what are your thoughts on the issue? Well, I think a, lo- I think a lot of the time fantasy is... Um, it, d- it does have a politics. Some of it can be very uh, conservative, and I, I mean that in both like the capital C and small C sense of the terms. I mean, I, I quite are, uh, you know, okay. The the Tolkien fans will be mad at me, but I would say it's very it's very easy and has been the predominant reading. I would say of a, a lot of Tolkien's work is that kind of small C conservatism. Um, mm-hmm. Uh. So it tends to be, I mean, if we think, right, obviously genre distinctions are arbitrary, often an adventure of marketing departments, uh, just a way of categorizing things. But if we think of, if we were going to be reductive, right, we would say that science fiction is the kind of utopian leftist idea, tracking back to thinkers like Darko Savin and, and the idea of cognitive estrangement from oneself. Whereas something like fantasy is is maybe more kind of like libertarian or conservative in the, in the small c sense of the term, but I don't think that is necessarily the case. I think fantasy can have just as many utopian or um, utopian and philosophical interests, right? Oh, totally. And I think you know one one thing we always talk about is that horror broadly tends to function as something of a diagnostic tool. You know, you can you can use the formulations of horror to tell you things about the society you live in, and and in the same way, there's something about fantasy that exists as as a probing mechanism. You know, you can you can use fantasy to stress test boundaries and to kind of create these convincing theoretical formulations for like what. What is a potential historiography? What would a political system look like in in a practice in a way that you couldn't convey in like Das Capital, if that yeah. makes sense? And I think it's more interesting. Like the, the, oh, go on, go on. I think it, 
I, I think there's an additional layer when you think about this in the context of British writing as well. Because, mm-hmm. like, I mean, the big anchor point, the big reference point for most people here would be Harry Potter, which is, like, deeply invested in a kind of conservative neoliberalism. It's about yeah. someone who goes to... It's about someone who goes to private school and grows up to become a cop. Uh, right? right? <laughs> That's what it's about. It's got this obsession with the class system. It's got, like, very pseudo-progressive neoliberalized politics um pratchett on the other hand is much more is it is in some ways much more cynical has a much better sense of humor and as a result has much better politics um mm-hmm. oh clearly yeah so i i think i think when you you add in the the kind of where from where does all of this emerge I think that adds another layer to trying to unpick the politics of a certain genre and how genre is constructed. So that's that's really interesting. I, I, I really like that. Um, so personal question for you. Uh, did you read the Harry Potter books when they were coming out? Uh, you, you and I are around the same age. So like we were the original target audience for the Harry Potter books. Um, um, yes, yes, I, I did, but... Um, but I've never reread them. Like I've never, Same. I've never, I've never gone back to them. I've never, I've never gone, you know, you, you know, maybe on, I don't know if it's just me, but like on a day, maybe where you're not feeling well, you stay in bed, you go, you know what? I want to read a book that kind of is like comforting and reassuring. I, even though I was like at a very formative age when they were coming out, I've never gone back and reread them. What I've gone back to and reread is stuff like Discworld is stuff like Terry Pratchett. It, honestly, it's the same for me. I, I, when they were coming out, I read. I remember being on my local library's waiting list. I was number eighty-seven for the second book, um, and I read up until four. And I remember sitting on a bunk bed in my dad's place, finishing. Or I was halfway through book number four, and four is the one where like Harry has the big falling out with his friends, and I like got so mad. I'm like, this little rich kid is the chosen wonder wonder wizard. Everything works out for him. He's got tons of buddies. And, and the only reason he's not even more popular is because he's a little stuck up. And I'm like, I couldn't, I couldn't. I stopped reading yeah. there. And then I binged them all many, many years later in my early 20s in like a weekend. But I, I'm the same way. Whenever, whenever I get sick, like um, my mom taught me how to read on the Narnia books. Um, so I, I always, uh, go back and reread those, especially the later ones that get really weird. Um, those are my favorites. <laughs> yes. Uh, also like, uh, Hobbit and Lord of the Rings. Like I'll go back and I've, I'll, I'll reread the, I'll reread those and Lewis's fiction, especially, um, like, um, what is it? Paralendra out of the silent planet, that stuff yeah, too. His, like his, I'll reread sci-fi I'm, stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Like that's, I mean, like, is the... C.S. Lewis's politics, maybe not so good, but the fiction writing is fantastic. I'll revisit those once every few years, but like, there's there's no room in my heart for you, Harry Potter. Um, but I, I, yeah, but when it comes to when it comes to rereading stuff, I, um, you know, people people hang on to their Pratchett paperbacks until they literally fall to pieces. It's like, you know, uh, because because it's it, this world is this. Uh, it's an it's it's a it's a narrative space which kind of becomes part of your life. You know, I used to I used to carry those books around with me. You know, they get battered, but you you hang on to them um, because they have a kind of significance for you. 
Yeah, and there's something that I think that there's a formal difference between, like, like admittedly, I haven't read any Pratchett, so feel free to call me out if I'm wrong. Um, but it feels like there's kind of a formal, uh, elemental difference between some of the literature we're talking about in Harry Potter specifically, and that's like this Pratchett text seems to be one of those like really good pieces of literature that can evolve as your thinking evolves that has layered meanings that you can key into as the text moves forward, right? You've got this fun story about a goofy band of characters saving Santa Claus, and then you've got deeper meditations on scientific positivism and issues of belief and faith. Yeah, totally. And I think, um, you know, people started reading them as just kind of like kid stories uh, or like, you know, uh, Monty Python-esque or Douglas Adams-style pastiches of sword and sandal fantasy and maybe that is how they kind of started but they uh, as 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 the readership grew grew and you know changed through time the writing certainly got a lot more complex there's a great um after pratchett passed away there's a great article by uh, neil gaiman where he talks about people assume that terry pratchett is like this jolly old elf who writes kind of quirky comedy novels but is is kind of powered by it by a sort of it says no. That's Gaiman says no. That's wrong. Actually, that that Pratchett was kind of powered by this sort of anger at the injustice of the world, um, and just because you write jokes doesn't mean you can't also be serious and be interested in serious things. Um, and it, and again, again, I'm aware I'm I'm talking as a as a as an unabashed fan, but I I do think that's true. I think that's a that's a real strength of them. So. In, in the spirit of Hogswatch, uh, all throughout this flat earth of ours, <laughs> that, that, was, that was the one thing where, so, so the, if you Google like Discworld or Discworld lore, the first thing you're going to see is a flat earth being carried by a giant sea turtle. And, it, 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 and I saw that and immediately I was like, huh. <laughs> Hang on. <laughs> wait, wait, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. <laughs> <laughs> but no, it gets much better. It gets much better. It's not flat earth stuff. Um, but uh, so are you ready? Are you ready for some hog scores? Yes, absolutely. We are. We are officially. So we are reclaiming post hog here <laughs> on the show. Uh, uh, we are now. Now, when we say when we say post hog, we want to We want to see your hogs watch uh, seasonal <laughs> celebrations. We are. We are hog posting. That is true. Yeah. <laughs> We're hog pilled. This this is this is the hog hog vanguard now. We're all about the hogs. <laughs> uh, where where should we begin? Uh, so so when I think when I think of feral boars, the first thing I think of is the holiday of Christmas. So, what are your thoughts about Christmas, and especially what it is under our contemporary societal moment? Well, there's a there's a kind of fascinating contradiction here, which is that. Any kind of holiday is functionally, from a productive standpoint, sort of useless, um, and thus it, it, it's 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 about how do holidays get integrated into capitalism as a productive system, right? Because at its core, any any holiday is necessarily about a break from the normative rhythms of day to day life. Um, and you can talk about like the kind of historical roots of Christmas. You can talk about like the emergence of uh, Christianity as a cu culturally hegemonic force. 
But like that's that's the crux of it, I think, in lots of ways, right? That holidays are are fractures, they're ruptures in 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 what Mark Fisher would call the grey curtain, you know, the the, the normative capitalist day to day. So there is a sort of implicit tension in holidays under capitalism because they have to be in some way made into habits of consumption and not merely kind of breaks out of of, of productive routine. And I think what, that's really important. Think? We so oh, this is so time time. You know, being a podcaster, you know, once you once you have like ten episodes of your podcast down, time stops being linear for you. Um, so I think this comes out before our Nightmare Before Christmas episode. Um, but in our Nightmare Before Christmas episode, we talked about the kind of commercialization of Halloween and how Halloween has become this thing that you purchase and then display in your yard. Um, it's, it's a signifier of how much money you have. You're good at Halloween when you can buy a bunch of stuff from a store and put it out. And Christmas has become very similar to that. Right. Uh, it, Christmas, in fact, was there before Halloween in terms of a holiday becoming a corporate nightmare. Um, but I think that even even in holidays that were invented for the purpose of selling things to people, you know, like those Hallmark holidays that only exist because a company needed to sell more cards, even in the most commercialized holidays, there is that element of rupture. Right. There, there is that element of of even in the most manufactured and fabricated of occasions, there, there is that desire to be anti-productive, anti-work, to, to, to kind of pierce the curtain, if you will, and, and reconnect with the people, the things and the events in life that, that actually matter um, rather than just uh, how much stuff you can buy. Yeah, absolutely. You know, we can't purchase... Holidays are, cre- are are made into space spaces to pu- to purchase and consume, right? But yeah. the I- the idea of them it- themselves are about necessarily that that kind of break. So there is there is this kind of like tension. There's this there's this sort of like uh, core contradiction within the modern experience of any kind of festival especially one like Christmas, which has been so integrated into the, the kind of seamless network of contemporary capitalism. Oh, I completely agree. And I think that's, that's an important stress point here that hogs watch kind of lays out for us. Um, but I think, I think in order, in order to get to that, we have to talk about the real rupture in, in the holiday occasions, the, the real event uh, that that's happening here, and that's all of the times that death has to pretend to be Santa Claus in order to make sure kids don't get sad. Uh, yeah, once again, we're talking about skeletons. <laughs> once again, uh, what is what is what is with skeletons dressing up like Santa Claus outside of my precy, which which outlined one potential theory? Well, well, really, it's because, um, I I really do think it's because. The, the the idea of holidays, the idea of breaks from life, necessarily takes you closer to the idea of death. Oh, absolutely! No, I I definitely think that's part of it. What is a celebration of the people and the events and the moments that you love, other than an implicit, at the least, acknowledgement that you have one less of those? And you know, and we, we have. Oh, go on, go on. And I know you've 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 actually talked about this before, um, specifically for the amazing educational project Romancing the Gothic. 
about the links between horror specifically and Christmas. So maybe maybe you can kind of like unpack that a little bit. Yeah, so that was um, a, a presentation I gave for Romancing the Gothmic about Christmas horror movies and, and some of the interesting things that, that happen in there. Um, and my, my, my two big points were that uh, Christmas, <laughs> Christmas horror is contemporary folklore, right? Folkloric traditions are constantly being renegotiated, right? Uh, uh, folklore is never frozen in a particular moment. It's constantly resurfacing and changing and, and being kind of modulated. Uh, and we see the same thing with Christmas, right? Uh, the, the Krampus revival that, that happened in the late aughts is, is a huge uh, a point of discussion there. And I think another another part of that is, is that Christmas is a very spooky time of year. Um, if we look back in a quote-unquote folkloric sense, you, Christmas is a time of starvation, right? There's no harvest. You're living off your reserves. It's cold. It's harder to live. You know, the, the type of creature we are on this planet, winter is very tough. <laughs> I mean, actually, you know? this is exactly what I was driving at when I'm talking about the kind of central contradiction, right? You, you're completely correct that historically, that time of year, it's, it's about loss and it's about absence. And it's about like, what don't you have and what you really need to kind of carry on to, to endure. Whereas, you know, capitalist... The, the capitalist Christmas is how much can you consume? And there is a, there is a direct, there's a direct contradiction there. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. There's, there, there is this, this piercing contradiction. And, and part of that is like, there, there, you know, there's been this like Coca-Cola-ification, you know, the, this Coca-Cola-izing. I, I don't know. I don't know how to transform the word here, but everything has been made Coca-Cola. Right, Santa Claus and the Christmas tradition have have become this kind of easily marketable thing. It's been stripped of any abrasive qualities and polished into this smooth, swallowable sphere. But there, there's there's always tension in that. There are always people that are looking to rough it up again. You know, we've got Terry Pratchett, we've got the Nightmare Before Christmas, we've got the Krampus revival that we're living through. There's there's always this. You know, no, no matter how smooth you, you polish Christmas and try and turn it into a uh, thing you can buy, that folkloric tradition—the fact that any holiday, not not even Christmas, but every holiday, belongs to the community that celebrates it in the yeah. many different ways it can be celebrated—that will always abrade the surface of that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Not to mention Christmas ghost stories. What? I mean, like that's that's an, another fundamental aspect of the season that gets down downplayed. It, it used to be part of Christmas to tell ghost stories. Shrug. <laughs> it's a goth holiday, damn it. Yeah, I mean, precisely because horror rests upon the 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 disjunction, the friction between how the world is presented to us and how we kind of collectively maybe even in the collective unconscious understand it to be right so if winter is the dark time the time of death the time of lack the time of like trying to survive and then it's presented as this you know joyful celebration of excessive consumption there's a kind of friction there and it's from that that you know 
ghosts can emerge. Oh, absolutely. And and my last thought on this is if you're out there and you're spooky and you're goth and you're listening to this and, and you're like one of those uh, people that just hate Christmas for, for no reason, I, I find that that's often like the I hate Mondays comment. You don't really hate Mondays. What you hate is the, the institutionalization of this kind of Fordist capitalism right and that's the same thing for christmas you know it's it's hated for those same reasons it's not the holiday itself there's something haunting in this holiday worth embracing rather than artificially sustaining the life of halloween well beyond its expiry date you know take take down the halloween decorations find something new find something spooky however if you hate christmas from a colonialist perspective or from an anti-colonialist perspective rather then hell yeah more power to you yeah um, well, given that we are talking again about skeletons and Christmas, maybe maybe we should spend a bit of time talking about uh, the skeleton in this in this adaptation. Um, let's talk about death, <laughs> <laughs> and I mean death with you know capitalized death and and how so so death in the Discworld novels in lots of Pratchett's work is a recurring character. Um, seven foot tall skeleton who has a scythe, um, but also has a very kind of curious relationship with humans. And what, I guess, what, what did you think about death? Um, so this happened to be really interesting because th- there's a lot of ways to depict the, the psychopomp, the embodiment of, of human mortality. And the ones that I always find to be really interesting um I'm less moved when death is kind of this silent monstrosity. I'm I'm more interested when death is given agency and character. Because how, how how do you do that, right? Like death is this penultimate cosmic thing, right? And I, I really enjoyed this attempt of humanizing death. And, and especially in contrast with the other kind of mythological and cosmic uh, entities we have in the film. What were some of your ideas? Well, like, um, so so people have actually written about the ways in which Pratchett's presentation of death has made, uh, like, the process of dying less scary. And mm-hmm. it, ha- I really like the way that you said, like, it's humanized death, <laughs> uh, which is just a great. That's a great. That's a great way of putting it because, like, we think of death as an abstract, universal, but. Um, to die is a very human process, right? It's something that all of us will have to reckon with um, sooner or later. And uh, there's a great there's a great line in a Pratchett novel about death where he says that death is not cruel, just terribly, terribly good at his job. Um, and the thing that is kind of I think that people find quite moving is the idea that this kind of abstracted anthropomorphized representation of something that we would we all have to face at some point is the idea that one cannot you can't exist in proximity to humans without at a certain point becoming sort of interested in them um so death is death has a sort of fondness for humans it seems in 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 the disc world um what do you think does that does that does that make sense yeah, especially 
intra the lore of of Discworld, or at least my understanding of that is that some portion of death's existence is is mediated and connected to systems of human belief. Not not in the crass way that we could all collectively just stop believing in death and therein live forever, but in that how, how death appears and what death is doing is is tethered, is fundamentally linked into the system. And that's true. How we approach death, what death is, that's that's mediated by human belief. You know, and and not not just on a completely immaterial level of like, oh, what do you personally think but it's also materially mediated right how how society how culture educates us and prepares us for the inevitable fact that every single person you've ever met will eventually die including yourself our culture doesn't prep you for that because that you know one way of of kind of analyzing that is like that does not prepare or that does not make you a better you know, commodified entity under capitalism, right? Being afraid of death makes you better at buying stuff because now you're buying, you're buying brain pills, you're buying dick pills, you're buying hair pills. You know, you're, you're constantly running from the inevitable through purchasing. But if you were instead like, fuck yeah, I'm going to get old one day and my hair is going to go gray. And like, you know, I'm going to go through tons of biological changes that are inevitably inevitable because they're part of being human. You won't buy things. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. And I think it's, I think it's, I under, there's, there's a lot of kind of really interesting work being done around, um, like, what does it mean to have a good death? And I think, um, I think the thing that, people respond to is this idea that death in the Discworld uh, is is uh, is one interested in humans but is not cruel like death death uh, in Hogfather for example happens in ways that can be very arbitrary and can be very um, quite violent because there's there is there is a, there's a great villain in this um, who really enjoys murder <laughs> but <laughs> but death as a character um is this kind of sort of universally calm and and sort of respectful presence that just turns up and is is there to sort of break break the news to people about what's mm-hmm. happened to them? Yeah, and I, I really enjoy that death is often kind of exacerbated by the circumstances. Uh, yes, like the, like, absolutely. Like, like the, this death is very like oh, again. <laughs> so, uh, do you, do you have any other parting thoughts on? Uh, what a phrase. Do you have any other parting thoughts on the embodiment of human mortality, or can we move on to his granddaughter? Oh, oh, let's talk about the fact that death has a family. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So is this, uh, do, do, you, do you know this from the Discworld lore? Is there, is there more to this? Because this was one of the things where I'm like, ah, oh, this seems like one of those things I should have read the books for. <laughs> uh, yes. So one of the, I think it's, I think it's one of the very early Discworld novels, um, uh, has death taking on an apprentice um and the apprentice falls in love with someone and they get married they have a and they have a daughter uh who ends up being adopted by death uh and this of course is uh susan susan who is death's granddaughter um and uh is is kind of human but is also kind of not <laughs> <laughs> Uh, what did you think about Susan? Well, so uh, 
you know, in in the movie, we don't get much uh, understanding as to why Susan is part death. You know, they they describe her as being death's granddaughter, and like uh, we we get like one scene where she kind of uses her powers to scare a monster um, who was hiding under the bed of some children she's babysitting. Um, and then we get a line later on where death is like, Oh, well you wanted to be normal. You wanted to live the human life and not the death life. And I think that that's a really interesting conversation because that, you know, um, so, uh, a little behind the scenes magic, uh, when you suggested a British, uh, children's fantasy author who specializes in, uh, kids who go to wizard school, my first question was like, uh, what's the turf meter on this one? <laughs> Uh, and uh, pleasantly, uh, uh, Terry Pratchett is not a turf or was not a turf, so that's that's fucking great. Um, but I think there's a lot of like conversations there about like relationships to family, how you choose to live your life, how you choose to shape your own identity while still being in conversation with with who you are on fundamental levels. And, and I found her character to be really compelling because it's a way of balancing between all of these things and, and moving through them and, and having them be negotiated not only by what your personal desires are and what's in your heart, but also the material circumstances of your life. Yeah. So, so, um, so Susan, Susan is a really interesting character, I think for exactly those reasons. Um, because all, she, she is a recurring character in the novels and like quite a lot of her, um, quite a lot of her kind of story is about trying to figure out how to sort of fit in, broadly speaking. Because if your grandfather is death and you have the ability to stop time whenever you want, um, and you you might be immortal, maybe we're not sure. Um, it's it's difficult to to kind of uh, live a sort of quote unquote normal human existence. Um, and and there is a sort of slightly fraught relationship between the two, right? It isn't it isn't necessarily the easiest familial relationship, but by the end you kind of see that both of them are trying to make that both it's it's not a question like one is compromising who they are, but both are making an attempt to meet the other in some form of relationship, right? Oh, totally, totally. It's not yeah, they're not like um easy go-to buds <laughs> they don't immediately resolve their conflict and even in the end they haven't resolved their conflicts but nevertheless like they're they're moving through that space right they have this familial tension Su- susan ironically is the black sheep of the death family yeah and the fact that there's no easy resolution for this but you know the parties involved want some kind of I don't even want to say reconciliation, but some movement through that space like that. There's a level of complexity there that I found really refreshing. I, I actually really like um, the kind of reading of it. It's like trying to create oneself, right? Instead of taking, oh, yeah. taking, uh, taking what you have been, what's been determined for you by family or background, but trying to, uh, to use that to allow it to take you in unexpected directions. Um, and you know, no, Terry Pratchett was 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 not a turf. Um, there is there is a lot of law in the Discworld novels, which is very interested in the um, possibility and fluidity of gender and gender expression, um, 
which I will say no more about, but I will encourage you to read about the Discworld and dwarves. It's super interesting. Um, <laughs> but yeah. but yeah, I I really like that way of thinking about Susan. And it's it, it's also this idea of like, uh, you know, someone who can be technically family, but can be so far removed from you, you know, that they're literally an anthropomorphized psychopomp how do you talk to them how do you how do you how do you even have a relationship but you're supposed to because you're quote unquote family and that's what family is supposed to do so there's there are all of these kind of interesting character tensions so speaking of the extended death family universe we should we should talk about the death of rats <laughs> yeah well, i i knew this was coming what what do you think about the death of rats <laughs> Um, I love I love this character. It's a little it's a little rat puppet in a Grim Reaper costume. It's the best thing I've ever seen. <laughs> uh, what do you like about this? Because I am very curious. One th- one thing that I've been mulling over lately is uh, this 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 news is coming around again. But in the mid aughts, there were several research experiments that kind of demonstrated empirically that rats experience empathy. Um. One of them was that, uh, so researchers would have one rat that was drowning and another, a couple other rats would, would be in, in the room with it and they would try and bribe the rats to let their friend die by giving them chocolate. But the rats wouldn't, the rats wouldn't go for it. They would save their bud and then eat the chocolate together. And then there was another one where there'd be two rats in a little chamber and one rat would be in like this really constrictive tiny cage where the rat couldn't move at all. And, and you, uh, you had to like lift a little lever so the rat could get out. Um, and they would put a bunch of chocolate chips in the cage and another rat. And the other rat would free the, the trapped rat and then they would eat the chocolate chips together. Or it would eat some of the chocolate chips but save, save a few and then free, free their friend and then let their friend eat. And it kind of like rats have an empathetic quality to them, right? right? There's, the, there's this heightened level. There's almost this... this uh, not to anthropomorphize them too much, but, but there's something deeply human about that. And, and maybe human is the wrong framework here. There's something that we share. There's a connective tissue there. So thinking about the, this kind of death for rats being on the same playing field as death for humans in certain respects, like, like there's something about that that's just really compelling and works towards this like it works within like a, a fictitious the the fict, the fiction i guess of total liberation yeah and uh and once again after after you know we're recurring we we are returning rather to um to the role and function of the rats and the ways in which our our uh, the rats of the world have been have been maligned um not only are they symbols of labor you know viva scabby the rat uh, but they are also, you know, death, death is something that is experienced. And so it suggests a kind of consciousness and a kind of like similarity. And often rats are killed at the hands of humans, right? Traps, poisons, beca- because because of that. And so it sort of makes sense that there would be their, th- their own psychopomp. Um, I mean, in the universe of the Discworld, there is a, there is a law reason why the death of rats exists. I did um, read that on the wiki. Yeah. <laughs> Which we won't we won't go into just yet. But no, I I love the death of rats who communicate solely in squeaks. Um, 
Yeah, and it is. There's also like this. This is kind of a tragic element to the character too, because the death of rats wears the same garments and wields the same weapon as the death of humans. Yes. You know, so there's this. There is that subtle nod to who's actually responsible for the great wholesale death of rats. You know, like a rat would never wield a scythe. That makes no sense. So it's it's almost as if it's embodying the thing most likely to kill it. Yes, which which, which does... again raises oh, all on. of these kind of like raises all of these like really interesting questions about as you were talking about like uh, consciousness and and empathy and the understanding of what it is to die. So, speaking of what it is to die, are you ready for some hog history? Let's do it. <laughs> let's let's get hogging. <laughs> I, I, I don't know. I'm trying here. <laughs> Um, so let's, let's talk about, uh, uh, some comparative Santa Claus studies really quickly. Cause in one hand we have the hog father who, who's, who's clearly a riff on, on uh, good old St. Nick. So, so do you have any, do you have any thoughts about the kind of comparative relationship between the two? What I really like, what I really, really like about Hogfather is the way that it gives a kind of materialist and historicist understanding of where belief comes from. Mm-hmm. Um, because Uh, It happens right at the end of the adaptation um, and right at the end of the book. There is this moment where you kind of see the ways in which ritual has developed. Um, You know, as, as the Raven puts it, it always ends with, it always starts with blood on the snow, right? To get through the winter, there has to be a sacrifice. Something Mm -hmm. has to be given. And it, it, and, and so, Right at the end, in the kind of climactic rescue, there is a, it's a much longer scene in the book. There is a moment where you see the various stages of, of the Hogfather developing historically because a belief is not just the latest iteration of it, it's all of those things. You know, beliefs are constituted and reified through time, and all of those things remain true as long as the belief is held. So I think it's a, it's super interesting that it, this this is a this is a text which makes um, explicit in lots of ways the 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 kind of it doesn't depend upon anything you know belief is not abstract belief is grounded in historical material. I really like this. I, I I like that as, as someone who's kind of interested in the in, in the like folkloric connective tissues of the figure of Santa Claus and all of its different manifestations. <clears throat> um, I I really liked how this adaptation of Pratchett's work shapes that history, right? Who lets the Hog Father grow out, out of this this grounded materialist historical moment into something larger than life itself. Uh, something that can't can no longer be killed with conventional means, right? That that random boar that died one day now extends on in, in ways that could have never been interpreted. There's something like awe-inspiring about that shift. Yes, absolutely. Um, and like I say, uh, it it like even belief in the context of a fantasy story about magic has a kind of like materialistic way of thinking about it. Um, and I honestly think that would be, a, that would be, 
because because I I suppose in a sense you know a capitalist Christmas is is naturalized right you spend all of this money uh, because that's just what you do and you get presents because that's just it's all very free floating right but like uh it, we don't necessarily talk about the 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 historical roots of Saint Nicholas for example right yeah yeah and I mean like. So another thing about the Hogfather that I really like is the, 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 there's there's a complicated and often oversimplified historical chain weaving together, you know, pagan European beliefs and Christian beliefs that come up through Rome to to corporatized beliefs that happen to these uh, holiday traditions that that wind us up at the moment we're at today with the figure of Santa Claus. Um, and, and there are countless threads and, and, and bits that are frayed everywhere. And, and I love how the Hogfather is, is thematically linked in this story to a, a god that appears out of nowhere that never existed before. That's the god of hangovers, who's very clearly <laughs> yes. this like um, bacchanalic figure. Like it's fantastic. The, the oh god of hangovers. Yeah, that, that's, that I love. That's what that's what you that because that's what you say when you wake up with a hangover. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I love I love that subtle interplay, right? You know, like there's something about the Hogfather that feels older, that feels less refined. Yes, absolutely. Because and less less marketable. There's yeah, there's something there's something animalistic, right? The very roots of the Hogfather are, are in animal sacrifice. And then perhaps even human sacrifice, um, and you know, if you think about it in the right way, this idea of like being the the constant self giving, the constant emptying uh, or kenosis of the self, right? To give away oneself, to give away gifts constantly is uh, every single year for all of all of eternity is something sort of terrifying. You know, it's like it's like. Uh, Having one's liver pecked out by the eagle, but for, for but again and again and again. <laughs> so, uh, spe- speaking of having your liver pecked out again and again and again by a mythological bird, uh, do you want to talk about charity? Yeah this this is something that's really really interesting about uh, about Hogfather because, um. So, so the, the the broad upshoot of the plot is that Death has to step into the position of the Hogfather to maintain belief, because without belief, the Hogfather will die. Uh, and as Death puts it, the world will end. You know, the, the sun won't come up in the morning if the Hogfather uh, is no longer believed in. Uh, and so to do that, one has to give away presents. Uh but this this leads into some really interesting moments about what do you, what do people deserve and and who decides what people deserve so so what what do you think about how how the hogfather adaptation is dealing with this issue of charity so i find this to be really interesting right because there's a bunch of moments where like just like jack skellington trying to figure out how to be santa claus there's a bunch of moments where death figures out how to be the hogfather um, and one that I really enjoy is so uh, Death has a little uh, magical pixie buddy who's always smoking a comically huge joint 
that that's hanging out with him. I'm sure I'm sure it's a cigarette in the book, but it looks like a massive joint. Yeah. And yeah, and yeah. there's a, there's a scene where he takes a drag and coughs and I'm like, eh, this is maybe not maybe not tobacco in there. Um so I'm choosing to headcanon that into the character. Um but there death is like uh oh people are losing belief and I'm and he's like delivering presents and he's like, "Oh, I'm, I'm what am I doing wrong?" and and his little buddy is like well, you, you got to do in stores, you know, the hog father's always showing up in stores to hang out with kids, just like Santa Claus does in our world. And so death, death does that. Right. And he's hanging out in the store and it's, it's just a fun scene in general, but there's this interaction between the manager of the store and death posing as the hog father where death is like giving away presents because, because that's what the hog father does. He gives away presents and and the manager of the store is like you can't give away presents how am i going to make money we have to sell things to people you can't give it away for free and and death is like quiet for a second and then he uses his like evil demon vision to hypnotize the manager mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's such a good like well why can't we do that santa claus is supposed to give gifts away for free why do we have the system instantiated in which like, like there's, there's, there's a scene where like death starts giving like a big wooden castle to this little girl and a sword and all these like expensive gifts. And the mom is like, I, I can't pay for all of this. Like you got, you got to give him something cheap. And death is like, oh no, this is free. And, and, and everyone's kind of baffled by that. And it's just like, there, there, there's such a tension there because why isn't it free? And, and of course, like we know why it's not free, right? We're, we've got historical materialism to tell us why it's not free. But that doesn't answer a fundamental question, right? That, right? that doesn't go deeper, right? That's a mechanical why for why it's not free. That's not an answer to the question, why hasn't it been made free? Yes, absolutely. Uh, and it, it's, such a, it's such an amazing, it's such an amazing detail to have a, ma- a manager of a department store call the cops on Santa Claus for giving away presents. Mm-hmm. And, it's, and it's like... Uh, like utopian abundance, you know, a, a kind of post-capitalist abundance, the abolition of scarcity would be seen as like violent crime to, <laughs> to contemporary capitalists. You can't just give stuff away. It's like, why? Why not? Because doing so completely breaks the foundational, not even economic, but kind of ontological assumptions of how the capitalist class think the world should work. Right. And there's, and there's like a, a desire that goes, I, I think there's like one layer deeper than that too, because one of the gifts that death gives this little girl is a sword, like a real sword. Yep. And, and, and mom is like, uh, that's a, you can't give my kid a sword. What, what if she cuts herself? And death is like, that'll be a very important lesson, wouldn't it? <laughs> Which I loved. I loved that whole exchange. But I think that that leads us to an important question, right? Because mom is expecting gifts that would fit into this kind of capitalist system of desire this kind of libidinal economy right you 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 wouldn't give a kid a sword you would give a kid the avengers glow in the dark nerf action sword 2021 edition you know uh, because 2022 edition is going to come out next year and that's what they're going to want next year you know you 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 wouldn't give you would give a kid an iphone 13 with the anticipation that they would then want the iphone 14 and and there's a way that desire is systematized, right? And uh, giving the gift of a real sword, you know, breaking the fantasies of those desires, confronting this family with the real for a moment, 
shatters that. And I think that that's also part of challenging this kind of economized approach to gift giving. Yes, absolutely. Um, because it shows the ways in which, uh, the ways in which kind of like a genuine surplus, genuine kind of like post-capitalist, post-scarcity giving is completely antithetical to like, you should get what you deserve under capitalism. Because the, the moment that is the kind of um, next part of this is there are, there are two kind of follow-up moments. One is where death comes across the little match girl who dies in the, in the snow. Mm -hmm. And, and Alfred, his, his little sidekick is like, you know, you know, you see it's necessary. It's what people, people who haven't got anything, they'll go, well, at least we're not the little match girl dying outside in the snow. You know, at least there is a, there's a, there's a hierarchy that makes sense and gives us a place. Even if that's a hierarchy that's founded upon kind of violence and unnecessary suffering. Uh, and, and death says, no, this isn't this isn't fair. This isn't right. Uh and and basically brings brings the little match girl back to life. Um and it's sort of like how much of like what we think of as appropriate generosity or appropriate kind of charity is in some way still undergirding a hierarchy that's designed to feel to make a make the self feel good, right? To protect the self's own conception of our place within a kind of like system of control and violence. And and I love that scene because um, <laughs> I keep forgetting this character's name. Death's little buddy, Alfred. Yeah, Alfred. Okay, I I, I kept thinking Alfred, but I'm like that can't be right. That's Batman's little buddy. Um, <laughs> Batman Batman's magical elf is named Al Alfred, and so is Death's magical elf. Um, but, but that, in, in that scene, uh, Alfred is like, well, you can't bring her back. Death has rules. You don't, you don't get to bring people back from the dead. And then he's like, well, I'm not really death today. Am I, I'm the hog father and he has rules too. And then he, he, he and then he says, what, what is it? Uh, there's no better gift than a future. Yes. Yeah. It's one of my favorite lines. I, I loved that line so much. It's just so powerful, right? You know, how can we give each other the gift of a future how can we extend the potentiality of tomorrow not only in the coming holiday season but beyond that the other moment that i really really like is where death ends up in uh, the house of uh you know in a very poor part of town and it's uh it's someone who's who it's a it's a it's a little boy who's asked for lots of lots of toys that they don't uh, a pair of trousers that they don't have to share and a puppy Mm -hmm. uh and and alfred says well you know he can ask for whatever he, whatever he wants he's getting this this single toy and an apple and death goes hang on now all this <laughs> all this i gave i gave all of those kids at the store whatever they asked for whatever they wanted and he says no you can't you can't just give people what they want because without that they'll stop hoping they'll stop believing uh and death is like nope you know, it's like utopian abundance or nothing. <laughs> <laughs> very, very here for like the usufruct death. This, this is a, an interesting. I don't know. I, I, I have a thing now for for skeletons who try to be Santa Claus. Um, 
But so we're so we're, we're approaching an hour now, and I know there's there's a ton of other stuff that we wanted to talk about. Um, but do you have any have any uh, last topics you'd like to hit? Well, we should talk about teeth, shouldn't we? Oh, we should probably talk about a giant mound of children's teeth. Yeah. Um. So the way in which you control belief is you control it through getting a part of the body. Um. And I, I actually, I don't, I don't know for sure, but I suspect this is actually based on very old, um, actual uh, English folklore and magic. That one of the ways in which you could control someone is through possessing their fingernails, their hair, or their teeth. And so, uh, we should talk about our villain, uh, Mister Tea Time, who uh, <laughs> thinks, who thinks to. Uh, who is commissioned to kill the Hogfather, to, to kill off Santa Claus, uh, and does it by changing the, the quantity of belief in the world by manipulating children's teeth. To do that, you go to the, the Tooth Fairy's castle and you collect them all and you do some magic. Um, and what do, you, what do you think about this as a theory of belief or a theory of how, how do you, you know, uh, the, the, let's, let's, let's talk about the tooth, the whole tooth and nothing but the tooth. <laughs> um, <laughs> that is the best best pun we've ever had on the show. <laughs> uh, what 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 do you think about this 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 tooth based theory of belief? So we often make this false distinction that or this false appraisal of the boundaries between the material and the immaterial. Right, we treat belief as this immaterial thing. It's ephemeral. It blows away in the wind. You know, it doesn't really exist, does it? But it's a materiality, right? It's part of the body. What you believe is incorporated into the very flesh of you. How you believe changes your relationship to the material on a fundamental level. And illustrating that by by having a guy with the creepiest laugh ever steal children's teeth to destroy Santa Claus is uh, nothing short of brilliant. Uh, yeah, belief is material, right? This is something. This is something the 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 adaptation makes very very clear. Belief is a material process that's constructed and maintained, honestly, through our very bodies, right? Through what bodies do and can do. Um. I guess I guess this raises a question. What do you what do you think of what this uh of what Hogfather thinks belief is for? Because there's a great conversation. There's a great conversation between Susan and Death right at the end where Death talks about belief and why belief is important. So this is this is the the, the quote from the Precy that I had, right? Like death draws the distinction that belief is what makes the sun the sun, and without belief, it's just a flaming ball of gas. You know, and and yeah. I think that that is an an incredibly important distinction. You know, you know, like collectively, so many people in our society believe in the validity of work. And when I say work here, I don't mean the actual doing of things because there will always be a need to do things. And some of those things are probably not always going to be pleasant. You know, you're always there. There will never be a society without doing the dishes, you know, and, and there are very few people on this earth who actually enjoy that activity, I, I would assume, you know, uh, but there's this belief that, oh, you, you, you do good in your nine to five job, you know, like you'll, you'll get a promotion and then one day you'll be the Bill Gates. 
that, 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 that is a belief that fundamentally undergirds a materiality that has turned the sun into nothing but a flaming ball of gas. You know, it, it has stripped the world of, of, any, of any deeper complexity and has flattened every surface. And that's, that's what's at stake, and that's what's outlined at the end here, right? This is Santa Claus is being murdered <laughs> in, yeah. in a very metaphysical level. Yeah, there's, the, the conversation is that, like, death says that humans need, you, you have to believe in the small lies, like, you have to believe in, in, in the Hogfather, so you can believe the big ones, like mercy or justice or duty. Uh, and Susan replies, that's not the same thing at all. And death says this, you think so? Then take the universe and grind it down to the finest powder and sieve it through the finest sieve and then show me one atom of justice, one molecule of mercy, and yet death waves a hand. And yet you act as if there is some ideal order in the world, as if there is some some rightness in the universe by which it might be judged. Susan says, well, people have got to believe that, otherwise what's the point? (laughs) (laughs) uh and i actually think the imaginative let's i like obviously it's it's a setup for for a joke right but like the emphasis on the imaginative capacity of people i think is really really important and it's important precisely because that imaginative capacity that immaterial that immateriality is what can contribute to the making of a better world Right, belief in a, a belief in a, a like revolution is an anti like in some ways depends upon the anticipatory consciousness that can foresee its arrival, not completely and never never infallibly, but there is there is a role and vital function for the belief in the utopian. And 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 this is fundamentally linked in materiality too. Right. You know, like belief is the necessary precursor for action. You have to believe that what you're going to do is going to mean something, you know, whether whether you're starting a party or, you know, starting up a uh, food, not bombs. You know, it doesn't matter what you're doing. Belief is the thing that undergirds that. Yes, precisely. Precisely. There has to there has to be a way of um, you know as as uh, as death puts it belief is necessary for humans to be human in the first place mm-hmm. you know to as as they put it uh, to be the place where the falling angel meets the rising ape which is a, which honestly I I still you know I I think I read the novel first when I was like uh, thirteen or fourteen years old and I still really love that line. That is a banger of a line, though. <laughs> so, Hogwatch, Hogswatch, Hogswatch. It's plural. Any, uh, any. Oh, oh, go on, go on, go on. To wrap this up, should we talk about the the villains of the piece? Yeah, yeah, we have to. We have to talk about them. So, so what do what do you think about our uh, perfectly scientific ghosts? <laughs> yeah. I I love the auditors. Um the auditors are the are these shapeless gray robes that hate humanity because hum- humans are imaginative and illogical and invent things like you know justice and mercy. Um and so they put a hit out on Santa Claus. <laughs> <laughs> 
they contract they contract an assassin just to 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 murk Santa uh, because Santa is an embodiment of belief, and if you can get rid of belief, you can impose a perfectly rationalistic, positivistic mode of existence. Uh, what what did you think about the evil ghosts? So I I, I love them because there's there's an irony to this, right? That they 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 too are part of the same kind of you know fabric. They're part of the same weaving that death and the hog father are, you know. But because a, a belief that the universe is not nothing but a purely rational system of positivistic measurements is a belief. It's undergirded by systems of belief. And like, they don't recognize that in themselves. You know, like they're, they're not competing to be the dominant system of belief. You know, they're competing to eradicate the thing that also sustains them. And I think that there's something very telling about that. Yeah, because right at the end, right at the end, they try and uh, chase the, the, the Hogfather off a cliff. Uh, and they take the form of um, wolves. And once you put yourself into the world of the living, you make death, you make your own death an inevitability. Mm-hmm. You know, that's uh, there's that great death line where death says, that's the funny thing about life, it gets under your skin. Right? <laughs> the more, and the more you fight for it, the more you, the more you want it, the more inevitable you've made death itself. And your encounter with death, right? So, uh, uh, Discworld is anti-positivism, uh, and this is this is canon. <laughs> I'm I'm so here for this. I love I love that final final battle, right? So death death corners the three wolves at the edge of a precipice, and they 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 turn back into their uh, ghost selves. You know these kind of gray specters, and they're like, well, you you can't kill us. You know we're we're part of the fabric of the cosmos. There's consequences if we die. And, and death is is kind of paraphrasing here, but it's like, of course, there's consequences, and he just kills them. <laughs> and he's like, yeah, the consequence is me. <laughs> yeah. And I love that. I love that 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 death kind of embraces this. That death is ready. I mean, th- this is like one of the things about the psychopomp too, about the figure of death, right? Like death in the tarot, and death in all these other symbol symbolic systems. You know, death. Death is never the end. Death is just always ready for change. Change for the better, change for the worse. Death is perpetually changing things, and and these 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 specters are attempting to 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 put an arrest on that process. Yes, yeah, they they're in, in attempting to impose a kind of static unity, mm-hmm. um, which is completely antithetical to both human subjectivity and death themselves. Yeah, and I think that's that's kind of the the reason why death has to be the protagonist, or at least one of the protagonists of this novel. You know, because the the, the final thing that you would have to stop to fully arrest the universe would be death itself. And and just oh, that that final conflict is just oh, it's so good. Every everything about this this I, I have to go back and like read the book now. Oh yeah, you totally should. You totally yeah, should. I've, I'm discworld discworld brained. <laughs> <laughs> uh you you have been discworld pilled uh i'm i'm so glad that it happened um to to wrap it up then should we talk about the assassin ones uh that is the kind of like main driver of the plot which is the satea timer or jonathan t time 
as he's referred to. Um, and there's a really interesting line that he has where, so the Tooth Fairy's world, realm, as it were, is one that rests upon the logic of a kind of child's drawing. And as he puts it, he is in touch with his inner child. Uh, he also has a really, really creepy laugh um, and has a fondness for just murdering people um, because there are no real consequences. And I think it makes a really, like, there's a there's a tendency to ethically idealize children. Uh, but but as this, uh, as this show kind of points out, like, being in touch with one's inner child is often an excuse for just indulging in the kind of, like, all of the violence and anger that, that you know, we're not allowed to kind of indulge in generally. What, what do you think about him? So this I find to be really interesting because what, what does it mean to be connected to your inner child? What, what, is, what, is the, what can be drawn out of that experience? And I think you're totally right. Like we, we often view connecting with your inner child as, as whimsy and wonder and goodness, but like I, I think we're, we're living through a moment right now where we see the real darkness of not being connected to your inner child, but being imprisoned in it. I was um, having a conversation with a friend of mine recently about the infantilization of millennials, and this will come to Zoomers in time as they age. But like, I think there, there's a reason why like a lot of millennial media is still children's media. <clears throat> you know, it's it's Disney uh, superhero movies and and Funko Pop toys and Star Wars, right? These these very childlike things. And then a lot of the discourse is like, oh, why aren't millennials buying homes? Why aren't millennials ha uh, having children? And, you know, like we've been materially barred from the cultural signifiers of adulthood. You know, like like the, the, the way production is currently under capitalism, the way our system is rigged, it's harder than ever to have kids because of money. It's harder than ever to buy a home because of money. You know, these, these things that adults do when they reach certain ages, you know, stop having roommates, uh, get married, have kids, buy a house, materially barred from those things. <clears throat> and I think uh, tea time is like the darkest manifestation of that, you know, like the darkest exploration of like, what if what if you were nothing but the pure whimsy of a child? Uh, but the worst elements of that, because there's like, there's a horrible cruelty to children because they haven't quite figured out the world yet. Yeah, precisely. And it's, and it's <clears throat> that which, which allows for the violence, right. Of the villain, this idea that one could, you know, uh, as he says, he's put in, he's put in the thought of how to, how, how do you kill belief? How do you kill anything that might be, uh, you know, just because you can, it's a very, you know, he says, I've done it as an intellectual exercise, but he does as, a, even at the end, he does try and kill death itself. Um, so there is, there, there is this, there is this kind of like awareness, like Pratchett's really good at writing kids, but isn't never sentimentalizes them. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and I think that's really important. This idea that like, I really like that way of putting it that like, being in touch with one's inner child can often be a form of imprisonment within the self. Yeah. Like that doesn't, that, and that can, and that can kind of like have disastrous consequences. Yeah. We're, we're supposed to grow out of our childhood and, and that doesn't mean abandoning the things of childhood. That means refining them. You know, like the, the, this is, this is growth. The, the, the tree doesn't destroy the seedling as it ages. It transforms into something new. 
and, and part of our current cultural moment is there's an arrest in that system, right? Like imagine a tree that's just a giant seedling. There's something weird about that. And, and tea time, oh, tea time is, is such a good villain. So unnerving and like su such good character design there. Well, um, should we should we uh, should we wrap it up and and move to our final thoughts? Yeah, yeah. What are your what are your what are your final thoughts about uh, the hoggiest time of year? Well, like like Halloween, uh, it seems like this is, uh, or rather, like the Nightmare Before Christmas. Like this, this um, Hogfather is trying to explore the possibilities of like. What does it mean to go beyond the kind of normative standard of what you think people deserve? Uh, should should not this time of year be a time where we 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 get what we all want? Um, even though, isn't that what makes it the kind of like the 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 the, the miraculous, the utopian aspect of of Christmas is, or the end of the year or whatever festival? is the possibility of 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 the kind of joyful excess in the middle of 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 winter and the darkest time and i think there is something in that which is really important for any any sort of leftist understanding of culture which is not to uh not to buy in huh to the capitalist <laughs> model of the holiday but but within it to try and find the kind of utopian kernel you know that element within it that capitalism can never fully co-opt um, what about you? Well, I, I, I couldn't think of a, of a better way to end today's episode than that sentiment. And to, to all of our listeners out there, uh, you've got one more episode coming this December. But uh, for now, until then, have yourselves a merry little hog's watch. <laughs> we hope you've enjoyed the Dread Discourse. Until next week. Stay spooky.